Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 31. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath day he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marvelled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons, and anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and his military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish and, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask of me, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and she said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately without haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body 
and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. Why is it that sometimes when a local does something extraordinary, they're instantly recognised as a hometown hero and, and everybody wants to know them and everybody wants to own them as, right, they belong to us. But then at other times, it's more like they're the tall poppy that everybody wants to cut down. Now, I don't have an answer for that, but I can tell you why it happened to Jesus. You see, Jesus' fame and his authoritative teaching and his extraordinary miracles weren't something that na the Nazareth locals could just marvel at and sit back at and, and, and just bask in the glory of their local prodigy. Jesus's message was as confronting to his hometown crowd as what it was to everybody else. And they had a bit of an added disadvantage of this thing called familiarity, which as you know, familiarity tends to breed contempt. When Jesus got up to teach in the synagogue, that same place that he'd grown up in, um, the locals were astonished when they heard what he had to say. He, he taught with wisdom, he did these mighty miracles, and it wasn't at all the Jesus that they remembered. Now, we need to remember it's not a matter of Jesus going away as an adolescent and coming back as a grown-up adult. By their standards, Jesus was somewhat middle-aged when he left Nazareth. He, he was in his 30s when he left Nazareth and went and began his ministry. And it seems the Jesus that they grew up with and the Jesus who conducted business in that town was a very ordinary sort of a bloke. He was a tradie. Isn't this bloke the carpenter? Look, we know his family, we know his brothers and sisters, we know his mum. But something had changed in Jesus. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him. The same Holy Spirit that came upon the church at Pentecost the same Holy Spirit that empowers us today to do things in Jesus' name that we could never achieve ourselves. That's the Holy Spirit that came upon Jesus at his baptism. Uh, Mark chapter 1 verse 10 says that Jesus came up out of the water and immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. In Luke chapter 4, Luke records that following his baptism, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. And then he faces the temptations, and then he begins his ministry. Yes, something had changed in Jesus. He was now full of the Holy Spirit. And now, as he comes home, yes, he'd been rejected from other places before, but now he comes home, and his hometown takes offence at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honour, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he couldn't do any mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. <laughs> no mighty work, <laughs> except for a few healings, of course. Now, imagine if somebody was here today and they laid their hands on somebody and they were healed. And then they laid their hands on another person and they were healed. We'd be excited by this, wouldn't we? We'd be amazed to see the power of God at work. And wouldn't it do a lot to build our faith? 
But that's not what happened in Nazareth. Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. They had no faith. Now, you remember a week or two before Christmas, we were talking about the relationship between faith and healing and how the relationship between faith and healing is so often misunderstood in the church of today. So many people will tell you, you just have to believe that you're healed and you will be healed. And that's the sort of faith they're talking about. But the faith that God is seeking is not faith in healing itself. The faith that God is seeking is faith in Jesus Christ. And this was the problem with Nazareth. They were astonished at Jesus' teachings and at his healings, but they had no faith in Jesus. They thought they knew him all too well. We grew up with him. He's just a carpenter. We know his family and there's nothing special about them. And they took offence. Today, we're going to be talking about the gospel that offends. Verse 5 tells us that they took offence at Jesus. You know what? I reckon one of the biggest hindrances to the gospel today is the fear that we have of offending people. It's crazy, isn't it? Jesus, I would die for you. Oh, but I won't offend anybody for you. We want Christianity to be this nice and proper thing. We want it to be socially acceptable and we never want to offend anyone. Would you agree that, that the thing that holds us back from sharing the gospel more than anything else is our fear of what others might think of us and the fear that, that we might offend someone. I'm seeing a few nods and a few blank stares. Well, we need to get over that. I need to get over it. We need to wake up to the fact that the gospel, the true gospel, is something that offends. It always has. It always does. It always will. And if the gospel that is being preached today is something that doesn't offend people, well, it's not the gospel that Jesus preached. And we'll come back to that shortly. When Jesus said that a prophet isn't welcome in his hometown, many of us take that as a command. Don't preach in your hometown. You realise, of course, that wasn't a command. He didn't say, don't preach in your hometown. See, the task of disciples of Jesus is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever we are. Now, most of the time, we'll be in our hometown. Some of the time, we'll be travelling from place to place. Some of the time, we'll be visitors. But wherever we are, the task of disciples of Jesus, the calling of disciples of Jesus is to preach the good news of Jesus Christ wherever we are. But be prepared for rejection when you do especially when you're at home. Right. In verse 7, Jesus sent out the 12. He sent them out two by two. And I think that's an important lesson for us for a start. As a church, we are on mission together. So often we come together on a Sunday morning and that's the only time we get together as a church. Why is that? 
we, we, we're together for the time that we're here worshipping Jesus, but then when we leave here and we go back out into the world, when we go back out into our workplaces, when we go back out into our sporting groups, when we go back out into our neighbourhoods, our districts, we're on our own. Being on mission is something that we're supposed to do together. And I wonder how much more effective we'd be if, if we had a mate with us and if together we prayed together and together we shared our faith together with other people. Um, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses have a lot of stuff really wrong, but there is one thing that they do right. When they go out witnessing, they do it in pairs. I don't think I've ever seen somebody go out on their own. And we should learn from that. Well, we should learn from what Jesus did here. He sent his disciples out in pairs. And so we can share our faith together. And he also gave them authority over unclean spirits. When disciples of Jesus are on mission, we, we take with us the authority of Jesus. A lot of us, in fact, probably most of us, feel that we're not up to the task. Um, well, that's okay, because Jesus is. And when we go out in the name of Jesus, we go with Jesus, and we go in his authority and with his authority. And even more impressive is it is a spiritual authority. Um, we don't, Jesus gave them authority to drive out demons. We don't have to be afraid of anything that Satan can throw at us, because Jesus is so much stronger. And we have authority in his name. So we take the authority of Jesus with us. What else do we take? Well, conveniently, he provides us with an equipment list. And when I was a young fella, I used to go on Scripture Union canoe camps and we'd paddle down the Mary River and we'd go for a whole week. And we'd take all of our stuff with us in sometimes waterproof drums um, for that whole week. And we'd have to take some drinking water, five days worth of tucker, sleeping bag, tent, dry clothes for night time. Very importantly, toilet paper. And that's also something that's very important to keep dry. There's nothing worse than soggy toilet paper. And we had to fit all of this into our sometimes waterproof containers. And then we'd have to sit out, fit our sometimes waterproof containers into the canoe. And the fact, you're picking up on this word sometimes. So it's very important to try not to tip over the canoe because often your supposedly waterproof container was not so waterproof. Um, but we'd have to stick pretty well to our equipment list. Uh, but inevitably, uh, most people would have too much stuff. And we'd have to weed it out, right? That's not going to fit. That's not going to fit. That's not going to fit. And when Jesus sent his disciples out on mission, he gave them an equipment list. What was it? Basically, take nothing with you on your journey except your staff. Now, that's not your employees or your servants or your roadies. Your staff is your walking stick for rough terrain. You can take a pair of sandals, and I wore sandals today. You thought it was because it was hot. No, it was so I could illustrate today. Yeah, okay, it was hot too. Take your sandals um, and take the clothes you're wearing. Don't take any tucker. Don't take your money. Don't take a bag. Don't take an extra set of clothes. 
If someone invites you to stay with them, well, that's where you stay. Don't shop around looking for better living quarters. And that's all. And people will provide for your needs. For Roman and I, one of the most humbling things for us is to depend on others to meet our needs. Uh, when I was a minister in a particular denomination, the paycheck turned up every month. It was quite a wealthy congregation that could afford it. And I knew that even if I upset everybody with what I said and people stopped putting money in the offering, that wouldn't matter. I knew the synod would still continue to pay my, my stipend and that I wouldn't go without. But when we left that denominational church and began Bush Disciples, all of a sudden, we were living day to day, week to week. And I've told you this before, but I'm going to say it again because it's a testimony of how God provides. I had heard the stories of how God has provided for missionaries you know, and, and how mission, these missionaries had been down to their last dollar and they had a bill that was due and no money to pay it with and then out of the blue a cheque had turned up in the mail from somebody they'd never heard of before. And I'd heard stories about this, but I'd never experienced it. But then when we started Bush Disciples, that became our story. And even now, I'm struggling with the question of whether I should continue my part-time business or should I close off that chapter of my life and just go full-time in the ministry and just trust that God will provide what we need. But I just wanted to say this. I want to say what an encouragement it is to experience the provision of God for daily needs. I had never experienced that until we started Bush Disciples. And it is a privilege to experience that. And that's what Jesus was setting up for these disciples. It wasn't that they didn't have stuff and they had to go and, leave and, and didn't have anything to take with them. He told them, don't take what you have. And he sent them out on a mission with nothing. He was setting it up so that these disciples could experience the daily provision of God. And that's a privilege to experience that. And you can experience that. But as I read this equipment list for mission, it struck me just how much it is the opposite of how most mission enterprises are conducted today. These disciples would go into a community and all they had to share was the gospel. In their humility and from a state of poverty, they were at the mercy of those who they took the gospel to. And yet isn't that the exact opposite of how most missions are conducted today, where people of wealth minister to those in need? And most missions today, we like to see that as we set this mission up, it's going to be fully funded before it makes a start. Donors are lined up so that, they're not going to, so that the missionary isn't going to be a burden on those that they go to. I know a chap who's a missionary in a poor country, and he builds his church by giving rice and education. He can give a bag of rice to a family, and instantly they become members of the church because for them it's a means of having rice to feed their children. They run a school and people become members of the church because it's a means of their family getting an education. But, but let's not just 
pick on missionary overseas, what about us in our community? Most churches are firmly entrenched into a mindset and into a mission perspective that says, we have to give something tangible to the community to get them to be interested in Jesus. We have to do this or we have to do that. We have to meet this need or we have to meet that need. We have to provide this service or we have to provide that service. That's the way most churches operate. And yet when Jesus sent his disciples out on a mission, his mission plan was exactly the opposite. You go in poverty. You go with nothing. You have nothing to give these people. You have nothing but the power of God and the gift of the gospel. I think that maybe we have become a generation of Christians who undervalue the gospel. You see, to give a handout or to run a program or to give back to the community in some way, well, that's not very offensive. And most communities are happy for you to do that. And that's what we prefer to do. Now, now don't get me wrong, these disciples certainly gave back to the community. They cast out many demons and many people who were sick were healed. But the pinnacle, the pinnacle of what they gave back to the community is what they preached. What did they preach? What did they proclaim? Get this. They had the nerve to go out into these communities and to proclaim that people should repent. And there, my friends, is the offence of the gospel. Most of us, most people in our community, like to think that we've got things in order. And even when our lives are falling apart, it's not, it's not our fault and it's not our life choices. It's somebody else has done something to me or the system is against me or whatever. Nobody likes to be told that your life is an utter mess and you need to start completely over. song years ago, I only know it from a paint ad, I did it my way, that's the way the world likes to function. And we don't like to be told that that's our problem. We've done it our way. The most beautiful life-giving message to those who don't want to hear it is the offence that makes men stumble. Something that's sandwiched in the middle of today's reading is a gruesome story that seems like a digression. And we might find ourselves wondering, why is that bit stuck in the middle there? In fact, when most people preach on this section of, of Mark, most people will divide this section into three different messages. The rejection of Jesus at Nazareth, the sending out of the Twelve, and the execution of John the Baptist, but Mark doesn't separate it. And that's the problem we have when we chop the Bible up into little bits. We miss a lot of what God is trying to tell us in his word. 
You see, Mark does not separate this. In fact, he sandwiches it all together. And I believe it's important that we hold it all together because if we don't, we're going to miss what we've been told. And the bit that's stuck in the middle is this rather gruesome story of the beheading of John the Baptist. When the disciples of Jesus began preaching that people should repent and they're casting out demons and healing the sick, John Herod thinks, now I've heard this before. He heard about what was happening. And he, even he heard about Jesus. And he started wondering if John the Baptist had come back to life again, presumably to haunt him. You see, John the Baptist, he had preached the need to repent from sin. He preached the need to stop doing what's wrong and start doing what's right. And John the Baptist pointed the finger right at King Herod because King Herod was in an incestuous relationship. And King Herod knew that John the Baptist was a man of God, and there's a strange statement there that, that he, liked, he actually liked to hear John the Baptist. But he wouldn't pay attention to him. He liked to hear him, but he wouldn't pay attention to him. And he wouldn't repent. And so he had him thrown in the dungeon. Anyway, long story short, Herodias, his brother's wife that Herod had married, and her daughter manipulated Herod to execute John the Baptist. His stepdaughter did a dance that so pleased Herod and his drunken guests that Herod said, well, I'll give you whatever you want. I'll give you up to half my kingdom you can have it. Just hang on a minute, I'll go and ask mum. Goes and asks mum, comes back, we'll take John the Baptist's head on a platter, thanks. He wasn't expecting that one, was he? Verse 26, and the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. Nice family, hey? A gory story. A sad story. But why the digression? Why is it here? Why is it smack bang in the middle of when the disciples are sent out on mission and when they return? I'll tell you why. It's an in-your-face reminder of how offensive the true gospel really is. And it carries with it the weight of the reminder that disciples of Jesus will be persecuted because the message of the gospel is so offensive. Why was it offensive? What was John the Baptist's message that he was so despised because of it? Well, in Mark chapter 1, it tells us that John the Baptist was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What did Jesus preach? Also, Mark chapter 1, repent and believe the gospel. What did the disciples preach when they were sent out? They proclaimed that people should repent. 
pretty common word there, isn't there? What were they preaching? Repentance. Much of what is presented as the gospel today, it's, it's not the gospel at all. Repentance of sin seems to be getting redefined as it, it used to be something that demanded a change in our direction and now it's just have belief in Jesus. The offence of the gospel, you see, is no matter how good you think you are, you are not good enough. And that's okay, it goes for me too. No matter how good I think I am, I am not good enough. We are all sinners. We all need a saviour. The only way to be saved is through the blood of Jesus and the forgiveness and the mercy of God. You are hopeless to save yourself. I am hopeless to save myself. There's the offence of the gospel. We have to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. To repent means we turn away from our sin and we turn toward Jesus and believe in Jesus to be saved. But turning from sin isn't just something we do in our heads. It has very real practical implications to it. And there is a very real cost to turning from our sin. John told Herod what repentance would look like for him. King Herod, you cannot be married to your brother's wife. He be she belongs to him. Repentance for you is to be married to her no longer. And this so offended Herod that he had John the Baptist locked in the dungeon. And it so offended his incestuous wife that she wanted John dead. You see, repentance isn't just a change of belief. It is a rejection of our old sinful life. It is a rejection of our old ways and actions. And it is embracing righteousness. We embrace the righteousness that we receive from Jesus Christ. As soon as God takes away your sin, you also receive the righteousness of Jesus. But it is also embracing the righteous ways and acts of, disciples of, of discipleship. I was privileged once to share the gospel with a Hindu lass. And she asked me, if I become a Christian, what do I have to give up? And that was easy to answer. It's the same answer that I have to answer everyone. Everything. Everything. You don't just take belief in Jesus and add it to everything else in your life. If Jesus is Lord, we repent of everything that displeases God. And that's what's so offensive about the gospel. The socially acceptable, non-offensive version of the gospel that's so often presented today demands nothing. It tells you you don't have to change your life. Just add belief in Jesus to what you, how you're already living and you're good to go. 
And that message is pretty popular. Why is it popular? Why do churches grow when that message is preached? Well, it's obvious. It's a message that doesn't offend. But what about us? Why would we preach the gospel to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved? Why would we preach this if we know that it's offensive to people? I'll tell you why. It's because it's only offensive to those who aren't being saved. To those whom God is going to call, this is the message that they will respond to because the gospel is the power of God to save. Yeah, many people will reject that message. And being your prophet in your hometown, yeah, you'll get rejected a lot. But not everybody will reject you. As disciples of Jesus, our task is to preach the gospel, even though it is offensive, in the knowledge that some will be saved. In a way, we're like a watchman up on the wall of the city. Our duty is to sound the warning. Our duty is to tell people, you need to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you hear what I'm saying here? I'm saying our and we. It's not my duty. It's your duty as much as mine. It's all of us. Sometimes a few people will receive the gospel and a few people will reject it. But there's also a disturbing possibility that sometimes an entire town or an entire district will reject the gospel. Verse 11 says, If any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. We have a responsibility to preach. Those who hear the message have a responsibility to listen. And they have a responsibility to receive the message. And I guess if you share the gospel with somebody and they don't respond to it, don't beat yourself up. So often we go, oh, I could have done that better. I did it wrong. Okay, learn from that for next time. But you can't beat yourself up saying that, that they don't believe because you shared the gospel. It was you that did it. It's on them. If they reject it, it's on them. We share the message in the first place because we love people, right? I want to get this clear. Like We're not sharing the gospel because this is a way of us earning our place in heaven. We've already got that through the grace of God and the blood of Jesus. But because we love God, because we love Jesus, and because we love people of the world as Jesus loves people of the world, that's why we share the gospel. And that's why we're willing to offend people because we offend them to give them the chance of being saved. But if they reject us, they're not so much rejecting us, they're rejecting Jesus. And this rejection itself is their own testimony against them. When we first started Bush Disciples, 
We planted tiny churches in tiny communities that not many people would ever consider a viable place to plant a church. Begonia, Dirimbandi, Westmar, Bolland, Thallon. And then once a month we'd invite people from these localities to come in to worship here together in St George. Well, we persisted for six months. And six months on, two of those places did not get going. Six months on, Bolan and Thallon had zero response to the gospel. And so we pulled out. Did we give up on them? I guess we probably did. But in obedience to the scriptures, the red dust of Bolan and the black soil of Thallon hasn't been on my ute for a while. Who knows? Maybe one day God may lead us back there again. But for now, this, their disinterest in Jesus is on them. The end of our Bible reading finishes like this. Verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. Now, sometimes I feel we might be in danger of being a church who wants to live verse 31 before we've ever lived verse 30 and before. We just want to be that church that are alone with Jesus and rest for a while. And yeah, there's a time for that. But first of all, don't you want to be the church that takes the gospel out into the world don't you want to be that church don't you be, want to be that church who is willing who wants to love people so much you love them so much that you're willing to offend them just so that they can hear the good news of Jesus I want to be part of that church don't we want to be a church that in prayer talks to Jesus about what we've done and what we've taught in his name. Don't we want to be that church? I know I do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that somebody was willing to be offensive and share the good news of the gospel with us. Lord, Lord, we want to thank you for the way your Holy Spirit takes that which offends and helps us to receive it as the best news that we've ever heard. Lord, I ask that First of all, that you would give us hearts of repentance. That we wouldn't just turn from unbelief, but that we would also turn from, turn from our sinful actions. Those things which we know are offensive to you, but we've continued to do them. Lord, please reveal to us everything in our own lives that we need to repent of. 
as we give our hearts over completely to Jesus. And Lord, I pray that just as you sent those disciples out on mission, Lord, I pray that you would send us. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us your spiritual authority. Give us hearts of love for those in our own community that we would share the good news of Jesus with them. Give us a new passion, Lord, that that we'd get together with another Christian and two by two we would share, that we would pray together, that we'd seek you together, and then we'd actually go out into the world together to call the world to repentance. And Lord, we pray that you would build your church in this district. Lord, I pray that this district would not be a place that, that we feel we need to shake the dust off of our feet because nobody would listen. Lord, we pray that this district would be good soil. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.